Turn back to Romans chapter 2, please. Romans 2. This is in direct continuity with last night's teaching. Don't forget there is the ninth annual Bolathon, April 7th. That's a week from Easter, sponsored by Gigi's Gang from 1 to 4. A lot of fun. If you don't feel like bowling, come to watch Pastor Brown. There's sign-up sheets for this, and it's for a good cause. Also, I neglected to mention both Sunday and Wednesday that Pastor Mike Lee salutes the brethren, all of you, and got a brief opportunity to speak with him. And he's with you in heart. So in case you've been wondering, he's still alive and well and sends greetings. Let's take a couple of moments Silent preparation on this Monday Thursday. I think that's what Christians call it. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this opportunity. We pray that you'll enlighten us by the Holy Spirit, that we may truly ascribe glory to you and thank God, thank our God through Jesus Christ our Lord for the magnificent deliverance that has come to us courtesy of an unconditional grace and courtesy of a divine action through and through and courtesy of a finished work of our Savior on Calvary's cross followed by a glorious resurrection. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will not only be active in teaching tonight and illuminating your word, but also in causing hope to overflow. And that that hope may not be ashamed or disappointed because the love of God would also be poured out in our hearts by that same spirit. We ask these things and ask your son to be present among us in a very special way. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Romans 2.17. We went through 2.1 to 16 last night all the way. So we've taken on 1.18 to 32 and then 2.1 to 16 in two fell swoops. And before we get started tonight, it should be kept in mind really all the way through Romans but especially in 2.17 to 29, that Paul is not attacking Judaism or the Jewish people per se. Instead, he's engaged in a dialectic of contradictories with a proponent of a Jewish Christian so-called gospel that may be called a nomistic gospel. That's a word that theologians use, and I just maybe I'll clarify it tonight. Nomistic comes from the Greek word nomos, which means law or Torah, 
So they take an adjective, nomistic. It means a, a gospel that is rooted in a justification by law works, by the works of the law. And Paul is in a dialectic or a rhetorical fight, really, with a teacher who propounds this gospel, with a gospel of unconditional grace and justification or rectification by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and a divine action rather than a human attainment. And so what he's attacking is the proponent of or the preacher of or even the teacher of a Jewish Christian gospel that may be called nomistic because it accentuates the doing of the works of the law as the means of justification or rectification. And so, in fact, Paul is in the process throughout Romans one eighteen, all the way from one eighteen to 3.20, and I think we could even make an argument for all the way through 4.25. He is demolishing a fortress in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 to 5, he talks about the weapons of his warfare as an apostle. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. They're not weak. But they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And that's exactly what he's doing here in 118 to 320. And then really all the way to 425 of Romans. He's pulling down a stronghold and capturing a high fortress, as he calls it, which elevates itself against the knowledge of God and against the true gospel, and he does it effectively. We've also said that this is analogous to a mixed martial arts fight, which Paul uses jujitsu, which takes the force of the opponent and uses it against him, and also Wing Chun, Wing Chun, which is also a martial art in which the Two opponents maintain constant contact, and they're only inches apart. And if you've ever seen one of those, it's quite exciting to watch. And this is kind of like what's going on here. The, there's a constant contact between Paul and an unnamed teacher. And we get this, of course, from Douglas Campbell's take on it in his book, The Deliverance of God, which he finally took from the Lewis Martin Galatians series in which Paul was combating certain teachers, missionary teachers in Galatia. These teachers are Christian in the sense that they believe in Jesus as Messiah, just like a lot of evangelists do today. They believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, but then they require something from people. They require some going down an aisle or inviting Jesus into the heart or the life or surrender or some commitment on their part. Whereas this law preacher believed that Jesus died for sins, but there was the need for circumcision on the part of males and the observance of Torah. And this is what Paul is standing toe-to-toe with. And so he's not attacking the Jewish people. He's not attacking Judaism per se, but he is in the process of demolishing a nomistic gospel, which stands as an elevated fortress against the knowledge of God. Read Second Corinthians ten four to five on your own. Really ten three to five. So it should also be kept in mind that Paul is doing this 
to demolish a destructive group bias in Rome, among the saints in Rome, especially among a self-segregated group of largely Jewish Christians and former synagogue-going Gentiles, they were called God-fearers, who have been influenced by this nomistic gospel and therefore hold a judgmental resentment or resentment against Gentiles, even their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. Using the pincer movement, we'll notice that Paul repels these things in Romans 14. Why do you despise your brother? Why do you judge your brother? And that's from using the pincer movement in which we interpret Romans. This antipathy or hostility is not like Jonah and his ill feeling toward the Ninevites in the book of Jonah. In both cases, the expansion of the gospel was seriously hindered. Principle, the gospel's expansion is seriously hindered by a lack of unity among believers, among saints in the church. God did not send his son to save the church. He sent his son to save the world. The church is to be a witness to the world of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and of a gospel of unconditional grace. God's the one who evokes faith. Christ's faithfulness is what justifies. When Yahweh called Jonah to be a missionary to Nineveh, the prophet booked a voyage to Tarshish, as you know. Tarshish is in Spain. Ever since the time of Jonah and before, there was an idea of the uttermost parts of the earth. In fact, when Jesus said to his disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and then to the outermost parts of the earth. To the Jews, the ancient Jews, the outermost part of the earth was Tarshish at the time, T-A-R-S-H-I-S-H. So Jonah booked a voyage to, to Tarshish because it was as far as he could get away from God that he knew about. The point is, Tarshish is in Spain. Spain, at the time Paul wrote Romans, was the outermost reach of his missionary enterprise. In fact, when he gets to Spain, he intends to get to Spain, never did, of course, but he intends to get to Spain after he delivers a, an enormous financial offering to Jewish Christians in Judea. He plans to come to Rome. He wants to have fellowship there with a united assembly. And he wants to proceed from there with tactical and strategic and logistical help. Not financial. He's already got that. He's already well healed financially, especially through patrons like Phoebe. But he wants to have a time of respite and rest and fellowship, which would be great incentive for him to bring the gospel to Spain. He's already proclaimed the good news from, he says, Jerusalem in an ark all the way to Illyricum, which is essentially Croatia, right, in our time. And then he wants to complete the ark and therefore complete his mission and his life's work 
by going to what was considered to be the barbarian in Spain. Romans 1.14, Romans 15.24, Romans 15.28. So interestingly enough, Jonah intended to go to Spain to avoid the missionary call. Paul intended to go to Spain to fulfill his missionary call. But in Jonah's case, Jonah's resentment or his disposition of antipathy against the Gentiles blockaded the gospel or the saving message of Yahweh to those people. Similarly, the disposition of hostility between some of the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in Rome also became an obstacle to the expansion of the gospel. And so Paul, again, he's doing everything here as a bid for peace. He's doing everything here to promote what I call CUI, Christian Unit Integrity, which is a reflection of DUI, not to be confused with that thing we all fear and have possibly experienced in our former lives, but divine unit integrity. Christian unit integrity, a reflection of divine unit integrity. Divine unit integrity is a unit integrity of love. And Jesus said, if you love one another, then the world will know that you're my disciples. In other words, the love through the unity of believers, which reflects the unity of the triune God, demonstrates to the world that Christ died for the ungodly and becomes a very effective means of expansion of the gospel. So when Yahweh called Jonah to be a missionary to Nineveh, the prophet booked a voyage to Tarshish. That didn't prevent God from catching up with them, though, as you know. In ancient Israel, Tarshish was the uttermost parts of the earth. And so Paul is thinking of this, perhaps. Yahweh's saving message to the Gentiles of the pagan culture in Nineveh finally got there, and it says everybody got saved. The whole city, from the king down to the least of the citizens, and also many animals, as the last verse in Jonah says. So Paul intends to get to Spain. He no doubt considered this to be the uttermost parts of the earth. And so, again, if Paul could bring the gospel of the saving act of God in Christ to Spain, he will have completed his life's work as an apostle in his view. The ark would be complete, A-R-C. But the Jonah-like resentment in a group of Christians in Rome against their largely Gentile counterparts, and that went both ways. Remember, in Romans 11, Paul handles very sharply, the Gentile bias against the Jewish Christians. There was a wall of partition of self-segregation among groups, and it's worse today. It's worse today in the church at large. It's worse today. Romans has to have an effect on the walls that separate Christians. And the thing that's going to bring Christian unity is a vision of an all-saving Savior. And without this vision, God's people will perish. That means they will lose their restraint. They will lose, they will live in an Adamic ontology. And they'll just live in a pseudo-Christian existence. So this is a, a very essential message. Paul hoped to have a time of mutually enriching fellowship 
with the saints in Jerusalem. And he hoped to have a time of mutually enriching grace. And he wanted to garner some logistical and tactical support. I'm repeating myself just because it's important that we get these things down. However, if divisive group biases were surviving and thriving there, both the fellowship is hindered and the missionary endeavor is hindered. So Paul was also very concerned that such biases rooted in human boasting. They all are rooted in human boasting. That's why I spent eight hours on Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, the strong man in his strength, and the wealthy man in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me, says the Lord, who exercises mercy, who does mercy and judgment and righteousness in all the earth. The judgment that he exercises is salvific or salutary. It is saving in every case. The outcome of divine judgment is a single outcome for all humanity, not a double outcome, as we discovered last night. So Paul believed, and in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, he says, this boasting is not good, and it is the kind of boasting, if it allows these biases, it's a kind of fermenting of the church until the whole is leavened, and the whole church is ruined. And so he had a strong concern about it. So the point is, if Paul takes down the castle of this nomistic gospel, then he can also liberate the prisoners who are kept in this castle's dungeon. They're prisoners who are saints in bondage to their own cultural and liturgical biases. And that's why he talks about 2 Corinthians 10.6, about bringing every thought into obedience to Christ as he brings all people to obedience to Christ. With this introduction having been made, then we're ready to proceed verse by verse in Romans 2 and to apply the pincer from Romans 14 on another occasion. What we have here is a metaphorical, rhetorical, mixed martial arts fight, and it continues in 2.17. Paul delivers several effective strikes. I'm only going to go from 217 to 23 tonight because there's quite a bit to say about it. But I don't want to say too much about it. What I'm trying to do is thread the needle here, have a very, fairly lean exegesis, and do Romans between 100 and 200 tapes or 100 and 200 to 200 lessons or messages or teachings. And so I don't want to do too much belaboring, but I don't want to skip too quickly either. So minute or minimal commentary, but nevertheless, we'll go from 217 to 23 tonight. Paul delivers several effective strikes to his nomistic opponent on the way to a total knockout here. So Paul is speaking in verse 17. He says, now, if you call yourself a Jew, he's talking here in the second person singular to a specific individual. And so the case that Douglas Campbell made that this is a particular teacher is strong. It's a very strong case. And it's one that I continue to advocate with a few reservations and with a few expansions. Paul says, now, if you call yourself a Jew, now, this is almost remind today I had kind of a fun time in my study because I don't know if you remember Chris Farley, but he used to do the air quotes extremely. He said he would, he was on a dating site and he said, Maybe I don't have hygiene. Maybe I don't 
brush my teeth. Maybe I don't take a bath. And he did all that. It was hilarious anyways. Sadly, he's not with us any longer. But Paul's doing this. There's all kinds of quotes here. He says, now, if you call yourself a Jew and you rest in the law and you boast in God, that's because all these are words that the teacher uses. I'm a Jew, and Jew, by the way, the word Jew is an extremely lofty title. A Judean is a, is a lofty title. It's an honorific title. So Paul says, if you call yourself a Jew and you rest on the law, you depend on Torah, and you boast in God. Now, the word for Jew here is Judeos, Judeos, which is, kind of means Judean, and it looks like this in the Greek. I-O-U-D-A-I-O-S. Eudeos. And it's used, for example, for Jewish Christians in Galatians 2.13. Jews, but Jewish Christians, who joined Peter in his hypocrisy. Remember, there were Peter was with a group, an entourage of Jewish Christians. They were eating with Gentiles. And that's very important. They were showing a fellowship with Gentiles. And when... An entourage from Jerusalem came down to Antioch. Peter became intimidated. Now, that's the one thing you don't want to be is intimidated. The gospel preacher cannot be intimidated by any human being at all, or he's done. If you fear men or if you serve men, you're no longer a slave of Christ. Now, Peter was intimidated by this entourage that came from James and from others in Jerusalem. James wasn't sympathetic with the the Jewish legalism of the time, but there were some Jewish legalists that were endorsed by false brothers in Jerusalem. So Peter began to withdraw from fellowship with the Gentiles. And Paul pulled him up short, as you know. But the point that I'm making tonight is this word, Judeos, was used for Christian Jews, Jewish Christians who joined Peter in his hypocrisy, even to the point where Barnabas, Paul's missionary partner, went with him. And that's what tore it for Paul. And when he stood up and confronted Peter, he said, you stand condemned because you are not living, you're not walking straight according to the gospel. You're not walking according to the gospel. You're not living according to the gospel. Now notice the word boast. You boast in God. And the word is... One that it's kalkaomai, kalkaomai, and that's what's used in Jeremiah nine twenty three to twenty four. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. But you'd say, what's wrong with boasting in God? This preacher says we boast in God. I boast in God. What's wrong with boasting in God? Well, I would answer that question by saying there's nothing wrong with boasting in God, except in this case, the boasting was grounded in exclusivism. That God is the God of this Jewish Christian and only of Jewish Christians, only the God of the Jews and not of the Gentiles. So the boast was unfounded. The boast was divisive. The boast was exclusivist. The boast was elitist. 
This notion is obliterated. Let's jump ahead. This is important. In Romans 3.29 to 30, Paul really hammers this home, which is why I think it goes all the way to Romans 4.25. He's still hammering away. Finally, when he destroys every possibility of boasting, this Jewish teacher says to him in 3.27, well, where is boasting then? And Paul says it's excluded. Now, there is a reason to boast, and he gets into it later in Romans 5, but the idea that he brings up here is in Romans 3, 29 to 30, when Paul says, evidently to the same teacher, is God only the God of the Jews? You boast in God, but you're boasting as if God is God only of the Jews. That's the problem. Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles too. And then Paul says, and this is a reasoning that this teacher can't escape, if indeed God is one, and what is that? That's the Shema to Israel. This Jewish teacher would have to agree with that. The Lord our God is one, Lord. That's the Shema Israel. That's probably the most famous verse in the Torah, in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. So Paul says, if indeed God is one per the Shema, which you could not disagree with and you'd only heartily acknowledge, if God is one who justifies the circumcision, that's Jews, look at what he does, by reason of faithfulness, by reason of faithfulness, ek pistios, same thing he uses in Romans 1.17, the righteous one shall live by faith. And the righteousness of God is apocalypsed from faith, ek pistios, ace piston, which is the same as dia piston. So Paul here says, hammering this home, it is God who is both the Jews, God of the Jews and the Gentiles, who justifies the circumcision, that's Jews with a foreskin, it simply means, or Jews without a, circum- without a foreskin, by reason of faithfulness, and those of the foreskin, acrobustia, the uncircumcision, simply means those with the foreskin, through the same faithfulness. And guess what? That is Messiah's faithfulness. God justifies, rectifies, makes right the circumcision, Jews... The God of the Jews makes the Jews righteous through the faithfulness of Messiah. The God of the Jews and Gentiles makes the Gentiles righteous through the same faithfulness. Messiah's faithfulness, because he's not just Messiah of Israel, he's the Savior of the world. John 4, 42, even the Samaritans knew that. So it must be noted also that this in turn was part of the answer that Paul gave to to his rhetorical counterpart who asked, where is boasting then? You've just about cut it all to pieces here. Where is boasting then? Paul's reply again, it is excluded. And then he goes on to say, and we conclude that anybody is justified by the faithfulness of Messiah apart from the works of the law. The boasting in God, therefore, as if he is exclusively the God of Israel, is obliterated by the apostle. 
This will also be effective in the demolition of the walls between groups of saints in Rome. Again, Paul's concern here and in other epistles, one of his primary concerns here is C-U-I, Christian Unit Integrity. Christian unit integrity, as it is in 1 Corinthians 1.10, as it is in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, as it is in Philippians 1, 27 to 28, where that unity is also related to the advance of the gospel, as it is in Colossians 2, 5, CUI, Christian unit integrity, is a reflection of DUI, divine unit integrity, in John 17, 21 to 23. This is a unity in love. This love becomes a witness to the world of the love of God that was demonstrated when Christ died for the ungodly. And God demonstrated his love in that while we, the whole human race, were sinners and hostile and enemies, Christ died. So there's no room for hostility between those for whom Christ died. That's a total failure of the mission of the church. So for the church to be effective in its witness to the world, there must be a unity created by the Spirit who pours the love of God out into the hearts of all the saints. Romans 5.5. 5. So now Paul has to be rhetorically ruthless here. He's... Defeating, he has, to defeat, he has to be pitiless toward this teacher. He has to be ruthless. Because only by totally defeating this gospel does he destroy the biases that are preventing the missionary enterprise. So he's rhetorically ruthless here if he's going to effectively demolish a stronghold that pre- prevents this unit integrity. So notice verse 18. And you know his will. By your own admission, you know his will. And you approve the things that are superior. Because you are instructed from the law. Air quotes are flying all over the place here. You are completely convinced that you are a guide to the blind. The Gentiles, a light to those in darkness. You're the light. Those Gentiles are in outer darkness. They're so benighted. They're in darkness. You're a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness, you say. My answer to that is if only this teacher knew the mystery of God's will. If only he really did know the mystery of God's will, which is to sum up all things in the heavens and on earth. In Christ. What are you talking about? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven if God's purpose is to reconcile everything in the heavens and on earth. If this man only really knew the will of God, he would know in Ephesians 1 9 to 10 that the mystery of God's will is to reconcile all things in heavens and earth. Reconcile. If only he did approve of the things that are superior, which Paul commands of Christians in Philippians 1.10. You know why? You know what those things that are superior are? 
Well, there are things like God's actions on behalf of all of humankind, God's gracious saving actions for all of creation, the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, the all-sufficient and universal impact of his death and resurrection, the demolition of the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles that was affected in the body of his flesh through death, the utter newness of life in the spirit, and on and on if he knew the things that excel. If only he were instructed by the gospel and taught by Christ as we are in Ephesians 4.20, if he only came to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, it surpasses the knowledge that's gained merely by Torah. If only he knew the fulfilled Torah of freedom in the Son of God, then he could indeed be an enlightened guide rather than a blind guide of the blind. Jesus said, you are blind guides of the blind, and you'll both end up in the ditch. The ditch is Gehenna, A.D. 70, the destruction of Jerusalem. Then he could indeed be a light to the nations, to light up the benighted. Romans 2.20, Paul goes on to say, since you are an instructor of the ignorant. This is per Isaiah 1, 2 to 4, Isaiah 42, 6 to 7, Isaiah 49, 6, which Paul did apply to his own gospel as the light to the nation, salvation to all the nations. So you can can consider yourself an instructor of the ignorant, having in the Torah the embodiment of knowledge and truth. That's what you think. The embodiment of knowledge and truth is Jesus. It's strange when all the way through Romans 1, 18 to 32, there's no mention of Jesus Christ. In all that the teacher says, there's no mention of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is marginalized and sidelined. But Paul, on the other hand, knows nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. He knows nothing else. The preacher should know nothing else. And so, the teacher never mentioned in his sermon Jesus. He sidelines him in his proclamation of a gospel of human deserving and human attainment. Now, here comes a devastating variation on the technique of the mirror indictment. Remember the mirror indictment? Let's take that sermon, turn it right on you, preacher. Romans 2.21, Paul speaking. You know, there's actually scholars. One of them was a famous scholar named Raisinen from one of the Scandinavian countries. And there was a trend for a long time that Paul was confused. And they said, Paul's jumbled. He doesn't, he's puzzled. He's, he may be a genius, but he's all fouled up and he's, you know, that's why, you know why they decided that? Because they never punctuated who's doing the talking in Romans 2. They thought Paul was saying those who strive and seek for immortality and glory are given eternal life by God, but those who are self-interested 
and pursue evil will be given wrath and fury. They think that's Paul talking. And then Paul turns around and says, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ for everybody. So he's confused. But the reason they assumed he was confused is they didn't take the time to punctuate and to see who's talking where. There is an a dialectic, a rhetorical back and forth. It's actually like a Wing Chun Jiu-Jitsu match in which there are blows exchange and fisticuffs flying, rhetorically speaking. And we have to figure out when Paul is speaking or when Paul is letting this other guy speak or when Paul is saying what this guy believes. And he continues in 221, Paul says, then you, he's talking in a first person Singular, second person make that singular. You, that's the teacher who teach others. Do you think he's a teacher? You who teach, what's that make him? A teacher. You, teacher, who teach others. Do you not teach yourself? You who preach, he's a preacher. He might do a sermon called, do not steal. You who preach, do not steal. Do you steal? In fact, it's stronger than that if you read the straight Greek. He says, you who preach, do not steal. Steal. You steal. And my interpretation of this is that this teacher is stealing in a most egregious way. He is stealing from God his right to glory. That's what he's stealing. He might not be stealing his neighbor's goods. He might not be pilfering from his boss. He might not be stealing in the classic sense of the word, but he's doing a worse kind of thievery. As Jesus said, the thief comes to rob and destroy. The good shepherd comes to give life, and that more abundantly, and to lay down his life for the sheep. This teacher is stealing from people the privilege of hearing the liberating, transforming truth of Christ. He's a thief. He preaches, do not steal, but he himself steals in a most egregious way. Romans 2.22, you who say or proclaim is the word lego, you who say or proclaim, do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? James even put it this way, you adulterers, because anyone who is a friend of the world or a friend of the age that's passing away is an adulterer. There's a special kind of adultery in mind here. You who say do not commit adultery, commit adultery. You who detest idols, rob temples. This is, he's being pretty hard on this guy right here. He's being ruthless. But he's using a ruthlessness to destroy a false gospel, which in turn will demolish the walls of bias that are rooted in this false gospel of human action above divine action, of the sidelining of Messiah, of the making of faith. And here's here's the problem, and we hit this with Better Call Paul. This is not Paul arguing for a justification by personal faith, by your faith, versus justification by you doing works of the law. That's not the contradiction. The contradiction is here is between 
God's divine action in Christ as the saving event and the saving action versus any human action. Whether it's human believing or human works according to the law or coming down an aisle or inviting Jesus into your heart or your life or asking God to forgive you or begging God's forgiveness or putting your Jack Daniels and your lucky strikes on the altar in front of the preacher who glories so much in your flesh because he made you do that in the sight of other people. And he only glories in your flesh instead of God. Paul's gospel is a gospel of divine action. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord from start to finish. Salvation is the result of a divine action, and it's already occurred in the event of Christ's death and resurrection, which is one event with two distinguishable parts, death and resurrection, because he was handed over for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. We said it last night. Why does Paul say we're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ in Romans 5, 9? And then why does he say we're justified by his resurrection? Are we justified by his blood, his death, or by his resurrection? We're justified by the one event of his death and resurrection. It's a divine action. This isn't justification by works versus justification by faith, your faith. This is justification by works versus the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to save. And so that's the real contradiction. So what does it Paul mean when he says you hate a, you hate idolatry, you detest idols. But you yourself rob temples, idol temples. Now he's referring and I think this again came up in Campbell and I did look at it. There was an event, and it became a very scandalous, infamous event. In a, I think it was around 19 A.D., so it was still famous. Teachers came into Rome, and they claimed to be enlightened Jews, and they were charlatans, imposters. They were there to pull a heist on the pagan temples in Rome, and they actually robbed the pagan temples in Rome. And what Paul's doing here is he is lumping this guy into the category of those false prophets, false Jewish prophets, who came and pulled a heist on the temple in Rome and then hauled out of there. Or as they said in Ninja Turtles, they hauled shell. Now, so what Paul is doing here is this teacher, by being a friend of the old age, is an adulterer. You know why you suffer, and you know why the church suffers, and you know why we will suffer until the eschaton, until the parousia? Because of the reflex of the passing age, of the passing principalities and powers that are defeated, their reflexive action causes them to hate the church, to hate believers, to hate preachers. And therefore, we are the church in an agona in this age, and it's never going to change. So you'll ne- don't ever think that you can get into a position where you'll avoid the suffering of this present time, because it's not going to happen until this age is completely passed and until the salvation that was wrought in Jesus Christ becomes fully universally manifest in his parousia. It's the reflex of a passing age that doesn't want to die. 
It's the reflex of a passing old Adamic ontology in you and in me that does not want to be passe. The Adamic ontology is like Facebook. It wants to be noticed. It wants to be liked. And it's addicted to the likes. Just like an addict is addicted to a drug. It's addicted to the approbation and the prestige and the honor that it can receive. It doesn't want to die. The age doesn't want to die. The more you understand the hope of the coming age and the age that has come in Jesus Christ, the more you're going to find yourself really not liking this world and not liking the way things are done in this age. But it doesn't make you hostile. It makes you a witness of the hope of the coming age, which has already come in Jesus Christ. So the teacher, by being a friend of the old age, is an adulterer, as James would say in James 4.4. 4. He's a robber of temples in that he's destroying the temple of God, which all the saints are, as indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, you are the temple of God and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And whoever destroys the temple, God will destroy in 3.17. That's what this guy's doing. He's robbing the temple which is the true temple of God, which makes him just as guilty as Nebuchadnezzar who ransacked the temple when he sacked Jerusalem in Daniel chapter 1. So this blow is the most devastating so far in 2.23. It's almost like a policeman arresting somebody. Halt! Freeze! You! That's what he says here. You! You! who boast in the law through your blatant violation of the law, you dishonor God. Here's a guy who prides himself on honoring God, but the gospel he preaches is a dishonor to God. Man, does this indictment fall on us who preach the word. It falls heavy. I'm scared to death, not of any man, but of God. I'm scared to death of God, meaning I don't want to teach Romans and get it wrong because I got to give an account to God for it. You think that's pleasant? That's scary. And it's not because I think God's going to thump me. It's because I want to honor him. I want to ascribe honor to him. So Paul has to be ruthless, just like Jesus was against the hypocritical religious leaders of the days of his flesh in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you, woe to you. And remember, by Paul being so pitiless on this teacher, he's effectively demolishing the ressentiment of group bias among some of the sympathizers of this no mystic gospel. If he can destroy this no mystic law works gospel, it's like blowing up a castle so that he can let go all of the prisoners that are in the cellar in a dungeon, which are the very people who are hostile against their Gentile brothers. They need to be liberated from that ressentiment, from that antipathy, from that judgmentalism. Just like the Gentiles need to be, the Gentile Christians need to be 
liberated from their scorn and despising of their so-called weaker Christian Jewish siblings. You who boast in the law. That doesn't mean he just boasts in Torah. It means he boasts that he does it, that he does the works of the law and that he's justified by it. Through your violation of the law, you dishonor God, he says. So the law and the prophets, what is their function? The law and the prophets, what is the function of Torah? It is a function that testifies of Jesus Christ. In his exposition of the scriptures in his resurrected body on the road to Emmaus, he expounded on Moses and the Psalms and the prophets. And he said, don't you see how all the prophets have taught that Christ must suffer and enter into his glory? He suffers for all and he enters into a glory that will one day fill the whole earth. And in Luke 24, 44, when the gathering happened of many believers, he did the same thing. He began at Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And he said, when he was all done with a very long exposition, he said, these testify of me. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, which means unless you see the Torah and the prophets as a witness about Jesus Christ, you don't see it at all. And that's what he did. That's what he's doing for us. He's opening our minds to understand the scriptures because the only way to understand them is to see them in their role as a testimony of Jesus Christ. He is the termination of the law for righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That is to the ones that God has evoked faith in. They see the law in its proper function, not as the means for righteousness, Christ has been made the righteousness of God for us. So, the law and the prophets testify of Jesus, and they, they boast of Christ Jesus. I like what Paul said in Philippians 3.3, 3, we are the circumcision. He's talking to mostly Gentiles, but some Jews. We are the circumcision. You know Why? The circumcision that they are is that they were circumcised by a circumcision not made with hands in Colossians 2.11. It was the action of God that cut away their Adamic ontology and raised them from the dead. That's why when God comes to judge the secrets of men, you know what the secrets? Listen, here's, a revel, here's an insight. This is a shocker. This one's going to get all the more people saying bad things about me. So I got to say it. When Paul said every person will have praise from God when the judgment is finished. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, the day of judgment, when he judges the secrets of people, every man, every person will have praise from God. He's thinking of Romans 2, 29. The true Jew is circumcised in heart and by the Holy Spirit and has his praise or her praise from God. What Paul is saying here is the secret that God unveils in every one of us is that all along our lives have been secreted into Christ. We are hid with Christ in God. The only secret God's going to reveal when he comes is that your life was secreted 
or concealed with Christ in God. He's not going to come and say, well, I know why you did that. Here you are praying. You think prayer is effective. You learned prayer in your little Sunday school, so you prayed to get a date with so-and-so. God's not going to do that. It's not the Jack Chick track where everybody's up on the screen. There's, there they are. There's Joe right there. Look at him. He's doing this. And look at it's in his mind. Look, it's in his heart. And, 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 and God's going to do that to all of us? Hell no. Irene already knows all that about Joe. She, she doesn't need to see it on a screen. She knows. But, and she loves him. <laughs> That's a mystery. There's the mystery right there. Now, how many years has it been, you guys? <laughs> Seems like it, I know. They came, got married on a motorcycle. They came in on a motorcycle, got married in five minutes in my office, and they're still together, and it's been more than 15 years, I know. That's an example to all of you. Spend your money on a honeymoon or buy a house or something. Don't spend it on a $30,000 wedding and then get divorced a year later because your bills are stacking up. Now, there's the example. I'm old now. I can say that. I'm coming to the end. But in other words, God's going to judge the secrets, my secrets? Yes, and here's the secret. Your life all along while you're on this planet was hidden in Christ, in God. That's all that's going to be revealed. And guess what happens after that? Every person gets praise or commendation from God because they've been circumcised with a circumcision performed by God's hands in an act of utterly unconditional, gracious salvation. There's only one outcome of the divine judgment, and it's saving, salutary, salvific, all flesh together will see and experience the salvation of God. So, in closing, absolutely antithetical to this man who marginalizes Jesus Christ and the word of the cross while boasting in the works of the law who's dishonoring God, absolutely antithetical to that, contradictory to this dishonoring of God, there are doxologies in Romans. A doxology is a part of a writing that ascribes glory to God. Because of what has gone before, the writer sees, wow, glory, honor, be to God for all the ages to come. And that's what happened in Romans 11.33. So we'll look at two doxologies and move into Good Friday with great joy. First Romans 11.33, here's a doxology, doxos, doxes, a, an ascription of glory to God. This happens after Romans 11.32, that God, who has judicial authority, used that authority to pronounce a sentence, a sentence by which all of human race, Jews and Gentiles alike, were placed in prison, a prison called disobedience and unbelief only so that the judge could then let everybody out of prison and have mercy upon all. The climactic verse of Romans up to that point, 1132. What's the response? What does Paul say at that? Oh, the depth of the wealth and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. In Romans, he says, oh, man, who are you? Here he says, oh, the depth of the wealth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. 
How unfathomable are his judgments? How they are unfathomable? Because the judgments are all saving judgments. That's why they're so unfathomable. And how incomprehensible his ways of acting. And that includes the way of acting to summarize the whole human race in disobedience in order to have mercy on on all. That's the incomprehensible way of acting that he's referring to here. For who has ever known the mind of the Lord? That's whoever knew what was on his mind. That it would be to reconcile everything in the heavens and on earth in Christ by the blood of the cross of Christ. Who would have known the mind of God? Who has ever become his advisor? Verse 35, who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all of the beings of the entire universe of proportionate being in all of its times. That's my expanded translation. Look at this. To him be the glory for all the ages. Amen. And then the most disputed passage in Romans, which I'm going to talk about someday, not today, is Romans 16, 25 to 27. Now to him who has the power to strengthen you by my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, not the preaching of Torah, the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery. That's the mystery of universal salvation. Kept silent for ages of time gone by, but now manifested through the writings of the prophets and made known to all the nations by command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience that is faith. To the only wise God, let no man boast in his wisdom. To the only wise God, that means the only being with true wisdom, God. Through Jesus Christ, be glory for the ages to come. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. And again, as we said last night, we can only say it tonight again. I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Who will save me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And if one died for all, then all died. So all are in Christ Jesus. With great anticipation, we await the day when Jesus Christ will be universally apocalypse to all mankind. And the only secret that will be revealed is the secret that all humankind have died. And their life is hid with Christ in God.